Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 6 this morning. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. For those of you that are new to Dawson, or those of you that need to be reminded, we're in a series entitled Dear Church. We're walking through the seven letters, seven addresses that Jesus gives to seven churches in what was ancient Asia Minor, what is modern-day Western Turkey, seven churches that Jesus addresses. We, we, we are looking over the shoulder of these churches, hearing the words of our Savior to them, words of commendation, words of condemnation, words of instruction, words of repentance. And one of the things that we realize is these are not just ancient documents, ancient letters that we just look at and have just sort of a historical interest in, but they're, they're, they're presently speaking to us if we would have ears to hear. So hear the words of Jesus to the church at Sardis, but understand that Jesus is speaking to our church and he's speaking to each and every one of us. Starting in verse 1 of Revelation 3, we read, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not sold their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. Would we have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to his church today? Jesus addresses seven churches. In ancient Asia Minor, seven churches in what we know to be Western Turkey today, Sardis would have been one of the more prestigious, that they would have thought of themselves as the most prestigious. Because to be from Sardis 2,000 years ago was to be from a city that had a history. And it was a history that was prestigious. It was a history that was acclaimed. Sixth century BC, the Lydian Empire is, uh, has, has the capital right here in Sardis. They were known for this fabulously rich king Croesus, who had his kingdom right there located in Sardis. It was strategically located. You have five major trade routes that would come through Sardis. So this is a happening place. It was a place that was thought to be militarily impregnable. You, could not, you couldn't get into it. They thought of themselves as, as indestructible. 
If you would have gone to Sardis, and even now you can see the ancient ruins of this area and what is now a modern-day city, but Sardis was located thousands of feet on this military height right here, this, this place where the cliffs are around it and behind it. So what happens is, is it seemed to be a place where no conquering armies could make their way to it, but the thing about it is that wasn't the case. They thought of themselves as, as completely self-secure. They thought of themselves as really rich and really famous and really a place that is happening. And if you were from Sardis, you walked around with your chest out. Look where I'm from. I mean, every state's got a place like that. Every place uh, in the United States. I mean, there, there are certain places that to be from this city, to be from this place carries with it sort of a weight. I'm from here. And that's how it was for Sardis. But, but the reputation wasn't actually reality. Two times before Jesus would have written this letter, this city would have been conquered. And it was conquered. you know how? That they're in the middle of the night, there were enemies that climbed those cliffs. And they broke into the city while, while everyone was asleep there. And they were conquered twice. And it was a city that its better days were behind it. But they were still living in the glory days of the past here. And Jesus comes and he has a reality check for them. I mean, they're a proud people. There are people that are a people. They've been somewhere. They're from somewhere. Their chest is out with pride. And Jesus comes and he brings the seven spirits with them. Revelation 1-4. You know what that's a reference to? It's the spirit of God, the perfect spirit of God. The seven spirits is just an allusion to the perfection of seven. The spirit of God is with Jesus as Jesus peers into this church. He brings with him, again, looking at the address here, the seven stars. There's seven angels that are representative of each of these churches. This, this uh, address and title of Jesus is just a reminder that Jesus is in control of all and he sees all. So he sees past the veneer. He sees past the res, uh, reputation, and he has a diagnosis that he brings to the people that he is calling them to heed. Notice what he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. And if you've been following along here, there's a, there's a certain pattern that we have for each of these letters. He's writing to Ephesus, he's writing to Smyrna, he's writing for Pergamum, he's writing to Thyatira. And what does he do? He oftentimes says, I know, I know your endurance. I know how you're faithful and courageous. I know your good works that you're doing. But notice what Jesus does. He flips the expectation. You can imagine that the Christians in Sardis, they pull out their notepads and they're, they, they're, they're ready with pride because there's so much going on in their church and they want to hear all the good things that Jesus sees in them and they get to the punchline and Jesus says, I know your works, your reputation for being alive, but this, you are dead. It's, it's a truth that stings. It's a truth that singes because it peers past the veneer of the outside. It it peers past the reputation. And Jesus, he's not coming. You you have these sort of managerial strategies that every time you bring some type of of weakness to somebody, hey, you, you butter them up with two really good things that are going on here. That's not what Jesus does here. He's not saying, here's two strengths that I want to tell you about here, and here's the, here's the growth area that I need you to work on. Here's the weakness that I need you. None of that. 
He goes straight to the heart of the matter because there's a distance between the reputation of this church and the reality of this church. There was a distance between the reputation of the city and the reality of the city. And what happened in the city has invaded the very ebb and flow of the church here. And the reality is, is this is a church that is losing spiritual vitality. Maybe they drew record crowds. Maybe they've got a galore of, of wonderful programs, a, a growing budget. Maybe, maybe they've got thousands of people listening to their podcast, and maybe they've got tens of thousands of people following them on social media. But what Jesus says here, he brings a diagnosis that they are spiritually dead, and they need a fresh work of the Spirit of God. You know what Jesus is doing? He is sounding the alarm clock. He is saying, wake up. You are spiritually headed to a dead end. You're a distinguished congregation in an influential city, but here's the truth. You are headed to a spiritual graveyard. And in verse 2, he says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. So you've got all of these things that are going. You've got these works here, but I look upon them and I look past the veneer. I look past the outside and I see to the heart of the matter. So often we do the opposite. Our, our inclination to an individual, to a family, to an organization, to a church is to judge a book by its cover. I mean, that, that is the human default sort of direction for all of us. And Jesus just does the opposite. He sees past the veneer. He sees past the outside. And he goes to the heart of the matter here. And that was true then and it's true now here. We see it true in Scripture. Can you think of a more memorable account than the time where Saul, the king, the Spirit of God, leaves Saul and Samuel, the prophet, has to go to Jesse and he has seven sons of Jesse that, that Jesse, a proud father, he, he brings up. And, you know, the first one's the, the lead in the school play. The other one's the captain of the football team. I mean, they're all, they're all tall. They're all handsome. They're all sturdy. And, and he, Samuel, the prophet, he has a word from the Lord that says, hey, look, you're going to have to look past the outside veneer. Because what I am looking for is not just what the outside presents, and you have it here on the screen. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel has to say to Jesse, surely you got another son. And Jesse has to leave the house and go get the, the, the run of the litter. The one that didn't even get the invitation for the prophet to come, David, who was out in the fields. God knows what to look for. And he knows what to look for in your life and in my life. And there oftentimes can be a distance between what we present on the outside and what truly is on the inside, our heart. We, we can go through the motions outwardly, like we're following him, like we're strong in the Lord, like we've got our act together. But God knows because he peers into the heart. And sometimes there can be a spiritual shallowness that lurks in the recesses of our soul. And, and this is the truth. Jesus loves us enough to say, wake up. I'm not letting you sleep through the class of discipleship. I'm not letting you snooze through life here. 
I'm calling you to wake up. And boy, we can sleep through a lot of things, can't we? I mean, that, that all of us that are in this room, you know what it is to set an alarm clock and you know what it is, like I know what it is to set that alarm clock and to, and to press the snooze button and to turn over to the other side and it goes off again and you press the snooze button and you roll over to the other side, you can sleep through an alarm clock and Jesus is calling the church at Sardis to wake up because their reputation is far from reality. The Old Testament prophets come again and again to speak against the spiritual shallowness that can emerge in our hearts. You hear the prophet in Isaiah say, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You can be far from the Lord sitting in your pew. You can be far from the Lord singing a praise to him. You can be far from the Lord while your mind is going through the motions of prayer and you hear the word of God and you're in communion in the sense that you're in the room and you're around the things of God, but your heart is far from him. It was true in Sardis and it can be true in the zip code of your life. Years back, I had a, a guy who had a tree company came by, had some limbs that were hanging over our roof. We needed to cut them down. I could see that. I knew that. He came. He was walking our, our house property there. He came to the very back of the house, one of the bigger trees right there. Sturdy, strong, gives shade. We loved it. He said, hey, I know you called me to get these down, but that whole tree's got to come down. I said, that tree? That's one of the reasons we bought the house. We love that tree, not that tree. He said, oh, no, no, no. Look, look closer here. And once he began to identify those parts of decay and disease, they were easy for me to spot, but I had been around that tree and been up against that tree and had received the benefits of that tree, but I had missed because I hadn't looked closely at the decay and disease that was right there before me. And that can be true in your life and it can be true in my life. Jesus says, I know your worst, your reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So we have to ask some questions. As Jesus gives a diagnosis for the Christians in Sardis to heed, it is a diagnosis that every one of us here in 2022 must hear and we must ask ourselves some questions. Is this diagnosis a diagnosis that, that we need to heed? Is it a diagnosis that is true for your life and my life? Let me ask you a question. Are you going through your life and you're spiritually going through the motions? Are you worshiping on autopilot? Is your head and your heart far from him? Are you checked out? Is there a time in your life right now? Is my time with the Lord, let me rephrase that, is my time with the Lord non-existent or is my time with the Lord rather inconsistent? Do I hunger for the things of God? Do I desire to serve him? Do I want to please him? Or would I rather please myself or others around me? Do I consult him in matters small, matters large? My friends, these are honest questions. The 2,000 years ago, Jesus is calling this church to heed, and, and today he is calling us to hear his word. Would we hear him say to us, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Oh, I pray it's not true of us.
There's a diagnosis to heed, but aren't you thankful that this letter doesn't end with verse 1? There's a call to embrace because all is not lost. All is not too far gone here. Verse 2, he says, what? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. So here we see that in this passage, in verse 4, he is calling us to look at those who have not sold their garments. There are those that have not stained their garments with impurity here. Now, he uses the word dead. The church is dead. But what we begin to see is is that there's still flickers of life in this church. There's still faithful remnant. While the church is declining and while the church is headed to a spiritual disaster, there's still men and women who are praying. There's still men and women who are faithful. There's still those that are on their knees whose faith is not a hobby. And the church is called to, to look to that faithful remnant. And to return to to be reminded of the gospel that has penetrated their hearts. And to turn from their sin in this moment. So he's, he's given a spiritual alarm clock to this church to heed in that moment. Now, what was it about that faithful remnant that, that stayed with Jesus and followed him? Well, they had a greater affection and a greater love for the things of God than they did the things of the world. That they, they were captivated by Jesus in such a way that while the world around them, even the church around them, was going down a spiritual dead end, they, they have chosen to take the road less traveled by. There's a fork for them to, to choose. And so many of their friends, probably many of their family members, had gone that direction, but they refused to stain the garments of their life with the sin that was around them. Now, these weren't perfect people. They're, they're people that were pursuing Jesus because they had a greater affection for Jesus than they did the things of the world. Some of you have seen this image before. It's an image that takes us back to World War II in Nazi Germany at the time. This is a rally from 1936. It was actually a naval vessel that was being commissioned by Hitler and the German uh, military uh, might that was being built at this time. You see uh, the, the salute of all that are in the crowd except for one. You see him circled. And he has his hands uh, vehemently crossed in opposition to all those that are around him and what is before him. And you think to yourself, what, in the, what, what motivates a person to be able to stand out when, when the crowd is going in, in, in such a prevailing direction? And, and his true story is a, is a pretty amazing story. We know who this guy is. This guy in 1936 is named August Landmiser. He actually was a part of the Nazi regime. He was, he was a person who was captivated by the direction of this renewal of German nationalism, especially as a young man. But what got him to this place where he crossed his arms, what got him to this place where he f- refuses to salute was a love that he had. A love that he had for one person. You see, he met a person by the name of Irma Eichler, and he fell in love with her. She was ethnically Jewish, which meant that his love put him in the crosshairs of the direction of the party, in the direction of, of Hitler at this time. And so he had loves that he was choosing. Would it be the love of the German nation or would it be the love of this individual? And the love of this individual, it captivated his heart. And so he proposed to her. And not only did he propose to her, but he married her. And for the rest of his life, 
His life ended in, 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 in uh, the, the crosshairs of, of German opposition at that time because of the, the love that he had for his fiancée and ultimately his bride. There was a greater love for a person that motivated him to stand against the crowd even when it was difficult. And my question is, is who do you love? You see, it's the love that we have for Jesus that propels us to be obedient to him, even when the crowds go in a direction that conforms to the patterns of this world. We're able to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because we have a greater affection, an affection not for the things of the world, but for, for the things of the word, the things of God. Who has your heart? For him, it was a person. For us, it can be a person, the person of Jesus. So here we have a call to embrace in light of a diagnosis to heed, and not everyone will wake up from the spiritual alarm. Well, what happens for the Christian who doesn't wake up from the spiritual alarm? Notice again in verse 3, remember then what you've received and heard. It's the same word that he gives to the church at Ephesus. You know, so often we don't need to hear a new thing on Sunday morning. So often we need to be reminded of the timeless truths that so often we forget to live into. So this morning, what you might need to hear is not a new truth, but it's an old truth. To look back at the gospel that has captured your heart and the word of God that is the sure foundation. And turn from sin and turn from the world and be uh, embraced by a Savior who's longing for you to come home to him. And so this message is a message that all of us need to hear. Hey, remember what you've received, the love of Jesus. Remember what you've heard, the word of God and the gospel. Keep it and repent. Turn around. It's the same thing he says to the church at Ephesus, and it's the same thing that we need to hear. There are times in the Christian journey that we get off the beaten path. We get off the narrow path. And we need to hear Jesus saying to us, get back on the path. Get back in the way. Turn around and follow me if you will not wake up. So it's a decision that all of us have this morning. We can push the spiritual snooze button. You can be sitting here and hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. And you can hear the words of Jesus from 2,000 years ago. And you know this morning that you need to hear this word to wake up. And you can this morning choose to, to press snooze. And you can turn over and continue to go down the road that you want to travel down here. But Jesus is calling you this morning. He's calling you to wake up. He's calling you to turn around and to turn to him. And if you will not, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come and hear him carefully here come against you. If you are a follower of Jesus, his way and his will will get the last word in your life. And it will be through your confession or it will be through his holy judgment. But he loves you enough and he loves us enough to bend our knees. I do not think what Jesus is saying here is his second coming. I think what Jesus is saying here is I I will come in judgment. I will come in opposition. I will come in discipline. I will conquer your willfully disobedient heart. 
Because I, I love you that much. And you're not going to know when I'm going to do that. And you're not going to know how I'm going to do that. You, you might think that you could go down the road and you can continue to travel in a way that displeases the Lord. You can continue to go down a road that, that doesn't honor God. And you could just go and travel and you could think, you know, God doesn't care. But here Jesus is saying, you're not going to know, but like a thief. And I really do think this is, a, this is a little insider conversation that he's having with the church at Sardis. Because they thought they, thought they were completely secure. But two times in their history, they had been conquered and they had been held captive. And so Jesus is saying, I love you this much. So notice again a call to embrace, turn from your sin. Notice a diagnosis to heed, wake up, wake up that you're spiritually dead and going down a road that doesn't honor him. And for everyone who is a follower of Christ, there's a promise that awaits. I love verse 5 here because it ends with where we're headed as followers of him. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I'll never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's this image of the, the race of the Christian life. And for every one of us who have heard the gun of salvation go off and we've trusted him by faith, we, we run this race and there are times that we slumber. There are times that we tire. There are times that we say, I don't want to run this race anymore. There are times that we, we go off the right path. Do you know that? And Jesus loves us enough to call us back on to the right path. But what he's doing is, is he's inspiring us who are followers of him. And one way that we know we're a follower of him is that we feel conviction for our sin. We hear the word of God and it draws us to repentance. Uh, persevering faith is saving faith and saving faith is persevering faith. So one of the great joys of salvation is is he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It might be messy, and it really is. It might be two steps forward and 14 steps backwards, but he has got a destination for every child of God, for every person that is in this sanctuary and every person that is in this world who confesses their sin and believes in the gospel. He will not let you go. He will not let you go. And he holds you in his hand. And you know something? Satan wants to pry you out of his hand. But his hands are sturdy. And his hands are strong. And he knows where you're headed to. Because he who started that good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. And there is a finish line ahead. And if you run a race, you get to the finish line. And there's a great reward at the end of that finish line. There's a great celebration there. But it pales in comparison to the celebration that is ahead for every child of God. There's a robe that you get that you did not earn. You trade in your sin-stenched garments for robes of white purity. This is what this, this white garment is a reminder that where we're headed, the shackles of sin are forever released. That's not the case here on earth. For each of these churches here, they're a mixed bag. You know why? Because every one of us that are here in this sanctuary, we're mixed bags. We know what it is to have faithfulness and faithlessness walk side by side in our own hearts. We know what it is to have courage and cowardice residing in, in our own hearts. The churches at Thyatira, they knew that. 
The Christians in Ephesus, they knew that. The Christians in Sardis knew that. But one day, we will be free. One day, we will be free from the life of mindless sin that that compromises me and compromises you and compromises us. One day, the the power of sin will have no word in your life, in your family member's life, in any church's life, and we will be in his endless eternal purity forever, never to struggle again. This is where you're headed, but that's not even the end of the story. Because what Jesus says, that's a lot, but that's not the end of the story here. What Jesus says is for everyone who is a follower of Christ, guess what? You are in the book of life. And I will never remove you from that register. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's this wonderful image of a register of eternal life where every follower of Christ is listed and is listed before the foundation of the earth. You know why? Because he is sovereign and he knows all. So before the foundation of the earth, he knew every person who would trust him as Savior. Every person who would turn from their sin and their name is eternally written in a book. And this is the promise for every follower of Christ. He holds you secure. So he doesn't bring his divine eraser and pull you out of that registry if you have trusted him as your Savior. Once saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints means that we're in this book and we're held by his grace. And you're there, how? Because of your good works? No. Because you paid enough? No. Because you're good enough? No. It's a free gift that costs Jesus everything. That's how you're there. I read a few years ago the story of two authors that got connected to this charitable organization and they did an eBay auction to be able to write a person who won the auction into the book. So 77 bids later for $27,000, someone ended up in a Stephen King book and it all went to charity. Over 50 auctions later, 50 bids later for $14,000 and some odd whatever, they ended up in a John Grisham novel. And we end the sermon with just a glorious reminder that there is a far greater book to get your name written into that cost you nothing. But it cost Jesus everything. Because you know how your name is written in that book? Not by ink, not by a word processor, but it is by the blood of your Savior. And if you are here today and you hear my voice, he is calling you to trust him. He is calling you to turn to him. If you're a follower of Christ, he is calling you to repent, to get back on the road of obedience. He might just be calling you to wake up. He loves you enough to sound a spiritual alarm clock in your life. Will you heed it? Or will you press press snooze and roll over? Let us pray.